0: Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. Yes, we're getting back into the book of Romans this morning, um, and and as I was anticipating uh, us being back together this Sunday, and I started looking ahead to where we had left off in our study of Romans, and and uh, and and I saw what the next text was, and I thought, oh, this is perfect. Uh, what what a better I couldn't think of a better text to to uh, to to look at together as we re-gather and re-engage with one another today. And so we're uh, in Romans chapter 12, if you don't remember, I know it's been a while, and uh, for those that are new today, we've been studying through the book of Romans, just kind of going verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, and we are in chapter 12. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 through 13. Chapters 9 through 13, or excuse me, verses 9 through 13. And so you can just follow along as I read it. Uh, to us, Romans chapter 12, verse nine. Paul writes, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Father, I love when your providence is so clear as we uh, go through a book of the Bible, and we so often land on a text that's just perfect. It just uh, seems to fit the the moment, Um, and I think this text does that today. So thank you for your sweet providence in bringing us here uh, this morning, Um, and I ask that as we Look at these verses, that your spirit would illuminate our minds to understand what they mean and how they apply to our lives. And Lord, that you would also, by your spirit, grant us grace to to not just be hearers of the word, but doers, and to put these things into practice. Because if we do, this would be an amazing place to be. And so, Lord, we want that. We want to be a part of that, making the church all that you would want it to be, all that you designed it to be. And so, Lord, help us to be good learners, good good appliers today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think you'd agree that we've all experienced a lot of firsts during the coronavirus pandemic. For most of us, this is the first time in our lives that we have not been able to attend church for an extended period of time. Uh, For many of us, this is the first time in our lives we've had to figure out how to stay connected with the body of Christ through other means than regular face-to-face contact. For some of us, this is the first time in our lives when we've had to face the fact that church is more than singing and listening to a sermon. And while we've been blessed by being able to watch the live stream and uh, participate in Zoom grow group meetings and FaceTime and text and email each other, it's just not the same. Would you agree? It's just not the same. And sitting on your couch in your pajamas with your dog on your lap, it may kind of feel nice and fun, and tuning in virtually, uh, it's just just way different than showing up in person and physically interacting with people. I think you could compare it to the difference between wearing a virtual reality headset and thinking and feeling like you're skydiving when you're actually just sitting on your couch in your living room, you're not really skydiving. There's a big difference between thinking and feeling you're skydiving and skydiving. It might look and feel the same, but it's not the same. And there are certain things that you can't experience attending church online. You you can sing and you can pray and you can hear a sermon, but there's there's difficulty. It's, It's very hard to do something without assembling in person, and that's what we call fellowship. Fellowship. I kept a couple post-it notes on my desk throughout this season when I, uh, when I knew we weren't gonna be able to meet for a while. I, I set these things out kind of as a way to stay focused on what matters most regarding church because it was all different. I had to change the way I thought about what we do as a church. And one of them, I had written down all the texts that I told you I wanted to preach from and on and we've been doing that. But the other one, I had written two verses. Acts 2.42 and Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, with a couple questions underneath those verses. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, you're familiar with that verse, I'm sure. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. My question was, how can we stimulate and encourage each other when we can't assemble together? I just was constantly asking myself that question. What can we do, what can we do, what can we do to stimulate and encourage one another? And then the other verse was Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so the question I wrote under that verse is, how can we remain devoted to these four things when we can't be with one another? Well, we could still be taught God's word. That's a good thing, right? Right? we could still pray. Uh, we even figured out a way to take communion in our homes, albeit someone confessed to me that they ended up using Hawaiian rolls and vanilla Coke that night, Good Friday. Leave it to the student pastor. I won't say who that is, but just leave it to the student pastor. But one thing that was difficult to do was fellowship. In fact, based on the survey that we sent out for you to fill out to kind of help us prepare for uh, Reopening the church today, the one thing that the majority of you said that you miss most about not being able to come to church was, survey says, fellowship. It's hard to one another one another when you're told to stay away from one another. Even so, for the past couple of months, we have sought to honor our God-given authorities and love our neighbors by following the guidelines that we've been given regarding social distancing, which, by the way, I don't think I ever heard that term before two months ago. Maybe you, you're a little older and you heard it said somewhere previously, but because it's really, it's really not a new concept. Um, it, it is a new term, I think, though, for most of us that, that's now been added to our vocabulary as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. Physical distancing as they call it, they prefer to say, because you're really not socially distancing, you're physically distancing yourself, right? It's all about limiting face-to-face contact with others in order to reduce the spread of viruses. I don't know if you thought about this. Um, In fact, uh, well, God mandated physical distancing self-quarantining and isolation and even testing people for infection in the Old Testament. I was laughing because we, we had an elders meeting a couple weeks ago and and I walked in and uh, one of our elders were already sitting there, had arrived early and uh, had his Bible open and he was thumbing through Leviticus 13, 14 and 15 and, and, and uh, kind of, uh, you know, boning up a little bit on uh, on, on, uh, what the Bible says about leprosy and how do you deal with a leper? And that's kind of how we all felt. We were all treating like one another as lepers, right? (laughs) Unclean, unclean, stay away, stay away. But that was a reality in the Old Testament. And again, we're still being told to stay six feet apart, and not participate in mass gatherings and avoid close contact with other people in order to remain healthy. And we we get that, we appreciate that, and we're doing our best to to, to, uh, honor that and observe that. But we have to also keep in mind that under normal circumstances, maintaining a safe distance from others and staying at home and just doing church online typically doesn't grow well for our souls. In fact, it has adverse effects on a person's spiritual health. God never intended us to live the Christian life in isolation, but in regular interaction with other followers of Christ who provide the stimulus and the support that we also desperately need. And that's why there's so many one another's in scripture, one another commands, Uh, throughout the New Testament. I I think if you consolidate them all and uh, kind of the ones that are similar, and uh, there's at least 40 things that Christians are instructed to do or not do to one another. And and really, it's practicing the one another's that sets the church apart from the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or the POA meeting or the PTA meeting or, or the neighborhood cookout. And in today's text, Paul mentioned the phrase "One another," three times, or at least in the context. Notice, he says in verse 10, "Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor." And that in verse 16, he says it again. He says, "Be of the same mind toward one another." And in these verses, Paul emphasized the most important one another of all. The, the one another that undergirds and motivates all the other one another's. And that is, of course, what? Love one another. Jesus was the first to command his followers to love one another. You're familiar with John 13 uh, in the upper room. Uh, during uh, the upper room discourse, uh, it, it all began with Jesus washing the disciples' feet And then when it was all said and done, he sat them down and said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He went on to repeat that command just in case they would not forget. John 15, verse 12 and 17, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. This I command you that you love one another. Well, the disciples got it because the apostles picked up on that theme and and promoted this distinguishing mark of those who claim to know Christ. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 said this, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. And then he went on in the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse nine, he says, now as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. I thought about how that verse applies to our church, and I hopefully can be objective about this, but It seems to me, at least from what I've experienced over the last two months and what I've heard, what I've witnessed, um, you guys do a really good job of loving one another. I think that's, by the grace of God, a strength uh, of this church. In fact, I was just visiting a a lady in the hospital yesterday um, who said, quote, I am overwhelmed by the love of the people at Lakeside Bible Church. And, and just the way that, that she's been cared for, she's been loved on uh, in just very practical ways. Uh, her grow group has just surrounded her and cared for her and ministered to her and her husband through all that they've been going through for so many months with her health condition. And uh, it was just, it's such a joy for me to hear her talk about being overwhelmed by the love of the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Does that mean we've arrived? Does that mean we're good to go? We don't need to be taught anymore about this. We don't need to learn anymore about this. No, we need to continue to what? Excel still more. First Peter 1, 22. Peter, who had heard Jesus say, hey, love one another like I have loved you, said this. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a, for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. So there's Peter passing on that same command to Christians uh, that he was writing to. And then, of course, Uh, The apostle John, the the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, had a lot to say about this in his letters. 1 John 3, verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is his commandment, Christ's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. 1 John 4, seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then he gives this warning at the end of chapter four, 1 John four twenty. if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's what? A liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, from Christ, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. As I was studying for this, uh, to preach this message, I uh, oftentimes find myself on a website called gotquestions.org. Have you guys been familiar with that, gotquestions.org? I would highly recommend it. Uh, I've never really disagreed with anything I've read so far on that. And it's a guy who went to seminary and, 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 and set out to be a pastor, and uh, he, he realized that this wasn't his thing. He wasn't, this, this, this behind the pulpit, public speaking, it just wasn't his thing. He wasn't gifted in that regard. He said, so how can I take all of my learning, all my training and in theology and ministry and put it to use for the kingdom? And so he said, I'm gonna sit behind my computer and I'm gonna ask or answer every question imaginable about the Bible and about God and about Jesus and, and you name it. If you've got a question, go on there, type it in and, you might find a really good biblical answer. Um, And so I'm I'm thankful for that man's ministry. But this is what he said uh, in an article about what does it mean to love one another. He said, in giving this command, Jesus did something the world had never seen before. He created a group identified by one thing, love, love. There are many groups in the world and they identify themselves in any number of ways, by skin color, by uniform, by shared interests, by alma mater, etc. but the church is unique. For the first and only time in history, Jesus created a group whose identifying factor is love. Skin rules, or excuse me, skin color doesn't matter. Native language doesn't matter. There are no rules about diet or uniforms or wearing funny hats followers of Christ are identified by their love for each other. That's good stuff. So what is he saying there? We are part of a supernatural society of very diverse people who are striving to love each other regardless of our background, our nationality, our heritage, our occupation, our financial status, our education, and on and on and on we go. The question is what does that Love look like practically? Well, that's what we find here in this section of Paul's letter to the Christians who were members of local churches all over the city of Rome. And uh, Paul showed here in these verses how we should manifest or express Christ-like love to one another. And again, the context here is uh, in in the, the the what we would call the practical section, uh, the 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 duty section of this letter, chapters one through eleven are all about doctrine um, and theology and uh, and 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 yet well so what is that so what well now we're into the so what this is how all that theology we learned in chapters one through eleven should be impacting uh, and and and, and uh, controlling our lives and so as those whose lives have been completely transformed by the the. The gospel, God's mercy in the gospel, and who are fully consecrated to God as living sacrifices, that's Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are to be closely connected to and sacrificially committed to our fellow believers. And so in, in, in verses 9, all, really all the way down to verse 21, Paul just gives a, a list of these short exhortations, kind of rapid fire commands that at first glance might seem kind of random and unrelated, but I think they're all linked to loving one another. In fact, Paul's sequence here uh, of thought is the same as 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. If you know anything about the letter uh, uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he, he followed up his teaching on spiritual gifts with an entire chapter on love, right? He talked about spiritual gifts in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, and then chapter 13, he said, hey, you can have all these gifts, but if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. And then he went on to describe love. Well, he's doing the same thing here uh, in Romans, because in verses three through eight, he talked about our place in the body of Christ, and particularly the spiritual gifts that God has given each one of us to be used to build up the body. And so as soon as he's done talking about spiritual gifts there in verse eight, he immediately turns his attention to to love. And I think the reason Paul highlighted love after talking about how the church is, is like a body and how we all have a unique purpose or function or gift to contribute to the growth and health of the body. And again, he did that in First Corinthians 12. He did that in the first few verses of Romans chapter 12. I think the reason he did that is because love is what makes it all work. Love is the circulatory system of the church It's the blood, if you will, that runs through our veins and enables all of us as members of the body of Christ to work together in a healthy, harmonious way. And and like a lack of blood spells trouble for the body, a lack of love spells trouble for the body of Christ. I would submit to you this, that every problem, every conflict in a church can ultimately be traced back to a lack of love. And ideally, every problem, every conflict can be solved or resolved with a fresh infusion of love. And so what does this all look like? Well, I've got some uh, things listed here uh, about love and um, 12 practical ways that we can and should express love for other members of the family of God. That's what you, if you have your little sheet that I put on the back there, hopefully you grab a copy. If not, you can jump up and go grab one now because you'll probably need it. If there's 12 points in a message, you probably need an outline, okay, to follow along so I don't lose you. But 12 practical ways that we can and should express love for other members of the family of God. Now, in other words, these are 12 obligations that we have to one another or basically 12 different ways to love, to show love. So first of all, we need to have sincere love. Sincere love. Notice what it says. Let love be without hypocrisy. That word love is the word agape. And of course, you're familiar with their, the different words in the Greek language for love. There's eros, which is more the passionate or erotic type of love between, a, between a, a, a lovers. Um, there's phileia or phyllos, however you say it there. That's more the, the, the friendship kind of love, love between friends. Philadelphia is where we, we get that, that name from. Storge is the love that family members share with one another, a parent to a child, a a brother to a sister, and then there's agape, and that is the word reserved in the New Testament to describe God's love, God's unconditional, sacrificial, selfless love that he has poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit according to Romans 5.5, and that he displayed to us by sending his son to die on the cross for us, that's... Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, right, Christ died for us, and that this love that is nothing, nothing or no one can separate us from this love. This is Romans chapter eight, verses 35 and 39. So we've heard about this love already in the first part of Romans. But this is the kind of love that we're to show toward one another. This is not human love, this is not natural love. This is supernatural love. This is God's kind of love, Christ's kind of love. And and so our love for each other, he says, must be without hypocrisy. In other words, we it must be um, it must be genuine. It must be sincere. We we should truly love each other and not just act like we do. Anybody feel guilty about that? I was thinking about that. Do I do I like really love? The people at Lakeside Bible Church, do I, just, do I just act like I do? I think we probably got some actors, right? And, and we've all in some ways got, got good at acting, playing a part. In fact, that's what that word hypocrisy, hypokritos in the Greek language meant. It meant a wear of a mask. And it used, was used to describe an actor in a play who would wear a different mask depending on the role that he played. Let's just face it, okay? We all love the movies. We all love to, you know, watch a good We love actors and how, oh man, they did a great job and they deserve an Oscar for that. Well, guess what? They're pretending. That's all they're doing. They're pretending. They're, that's what acting is. It's pretending to be somebody that you really aren't. And and uh, usually the, the, the people that win the Oscars, they played a role that that's pretty much who they are in real life anyway, right? And uh, that, that's how it goes. But... The point is, we shouldn't pretend to love someone when we really don't. We shouldn't fake it. Our love should be without hypocrisy, it should be real, it should be genuine. You know, Judas would be the classic example. Remember, his last act in the presence of Christ was to what? He came up and kissed him which was pretentious, it was, it was not, it was fake, it wasn't real, he didn't really love Jesus, that was a sign of affection, that holy kiss was a sign of love in those days, and uh, he was just playing a part, he was just going through the motions. Don't be like Judas, have sincere love. Secondly, our love needs to be discriminating, we need to show and demonstrate and express discriminating love towards one another. Notice, interesting follow-up here, he says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Again, how interesting that right after exhorting us to love, Paul essentially exhorted us to hate. That's what the word abhor means, hate. What is evil? Cling to what is good. Now, in the context, evil likely refers to any and all unloving attitudes actions or words, whether it's bitterness or anger or slander or malice or pride or envy, you name it. Good, on the other hand, refers to every manifestation of godly Christ-like love. And so what Paul is saying is that we should despise or look with loathing or horror upon any words, any actions, any attitudes that exhibit a lack of love that hurt one another and tear one another down and destroy the church. Turn over to the last chapter of Romans, Romans sixteen seventeen, 17, and, and Paul urges the, the brethren here as he wraps up this letter. He says, I urge you, this is Romans sixteen seventeen. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. You want to, Practice social distancing. These are the people you practice social distancing from, right? You get away from these people. You don't want to be around these kind of people. You don't want any contact with these kind of people because they will infect you with their bitterness and their anger and their lies. And so we should abhor what is evil. And, and on the other hand, though, we should join ourselves to and stick together with those whose lives are characterized by love and the pursuit of unity. That, that when it says there that we are to, to uh, cling to what is good, that word it means to be glued to or cemented together or literally wedded to. So the bond of marriage would be a good example of, of what it looks like to, 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 to cling to, to what is good so essentially, we're to hate what God hates and love what God loves, which requires discernment on our part. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. So the love that God wants us to have for our fellow believers isn't, isn't a sloppy, mushy kind of love, we just love everyone indiscriminately, regardless of what they believe and how they live, which, by the way, is very common and is getting more common in the church today, where we just accept everybody, we just, we just love everybody, we're just one big happy family. Well, love must be tempered with truth. And that takes a lot of wisdom and winsomeness to work through that, especially when you're uh, when you're in a position where you have to interact with people that you don't necessarily agree with, you don't agree with their theology, you don't agree with their lifestyle, how can you still love them and not agree with them? So again, the point is that our love needs to be discriminating in a good sense of the word. Number three, we need to express familial love. Familial love toward one another. Notice, what Paul goes on to say in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. The word here, interesting, is philostorgos. And if you remember, I said there's a number of different words for love in the Greek language and philos is one of them and storge is one of them. Guess what, Paul combined these words here and uh, I think what he was doing was, was he was expressing or, or describing the kind of love shared between friends and a kind of love shared between family members. Again, love of a parent for a child, husband for a wife, brother for a sister. The point is we should deal with each other tenderly and affectionately like we do the members of our own family. I hope that's how you interact as a family, right? Why? Because we are all members of God's household. We're all part of the family of God. And so we should truly cherish one another. I love how Paul coached, Young Timothy, there in Ephesus, he had his work cut out for him. He was a young man. um, Even though he was probably around 40 at the time, that was considered a young man. And so um, there was a lot of people that looked down on him because of his youthfulness, right? Oh, to be 40 again, right? Um, That was a youthful guy. And so Paul said, hey, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, you show yourself an example of of what a believer looks like. But he also said this in 1 Timothy 5, uh, verse 1. He said, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. Timothy, when you gotta, when you gotta have a, a hard conversation with an older man in the church, treat him like your daddy. To the younger men as brothers, treat him like your kid brother. The younger women as mothers, respectfully, and the younger women as sisters, in all purity. Again, 1 John 3.10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, right? This is, how do we know we're part of the family of God? That we're part of the, God's household? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And so Paul's just reminding us here, we need to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We need to look at one another like, hey, there's my dad, there's my mom, there's my little brother, there's my little sister. Do you view one another when you come to church like that? Uh, we should. And, and there's a reason why, right, uh, particularly the Baptists uh, like to say, hey, brother, hey, brother, hey, sister, how you doing, right? I mean, that's biblical. While, while I may not say that, and, uh, and somebody calls me, hey, brother Ken, I'm like, hey, I'm, you just call me Ken, it's fine. <laughs> but... Hey, whatever, whatever floats your boat, if you like saying that because it's a, remi- a good reminder to you that hey, I'm your brother and you're my brother, you're my sister, then hey, say it. You probably don't want to say Father Ken though. That might be, um, blur the lines a little bit there. You young'uns calling me Father Ken. Um, you just call me Pastor Ken, that's fine. How about this? Preferential love. Preferential love. This is good, I like this one. Give preference to one another in honor. So the idea here is for, or out of love for one another, we try to outdo each other in deferring to one another and giving honor to one another. In other words, it's almost like you have a friendly competition going to see who can treat each other better. I witness this every Tuesday when we go to lunch as a staff. Our pastors hop in a car and we head off to a local restaurant typically and um, not recently obviously, but... um, uh, but the point is we, we, we head to the car and, I, and, I'm, and I'm seeing the other guys starting to jockey for position and it's not for shotgun. That's usually what happens when you're heading to the car. Shotgun! You wanna be right up there. If you're not driving, you wanna be in the front seat. These guys are jockeying for the back seat. And it's almost like they, they, they get a kick out of seeing who they can make sit in the front seat, you know? As if, hey, I, I'm deferring to you and I'm honoring you and you get the seat of honor and we're gonna see you in the back seat. And it's a fun little game that they play every, every, every week. And uh, the point is we, we shouldn't, sh- shouldn't arrogantly seek our own recognition. We, we, we shouldn't, um, uh, w- w- instead, what we should do, we, we should take the lead in recognizing others and showing them appreciation for what they have done. Instead of walking around waiting for somebody to appreciate us, hey, I'm expecting appreciation. Hey, hey, come on. Haven't you, don't you know who I am? Don't you, haven't you seen what I've done? Don't you know that I'm the guy that if if I wasn't here for the last two months, you wouldn't have been able to go to church? That's that's Andrew in the back, right? Um, Hey, come on, you know, I want to hear some praise. I want to hear some accolades, things like that. No, we don't do that. In fact, we take the lead. We lead out in recognizing others and appreciating them. We're not always looking out for number one. In other words, what we put others first, and we genuinely prefer to see them praised and them admired rather than us, and their accomplishments acknowledged and appreciated rather than ours. It's Philippians two, three, and four. Do nothing out of what selfishness or pride or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. Don't just look out for your own interests; look out for the interests of others. And we need to always be reminded of that because our tendency is that when our service goes unrecognized or we feel underappreciated, we become bitter and resentful toward others and envious others, don't we? Am I the only sinner in here? Okay, is it, that's, that's typically our nature, right? We don't like to go unrecognized or unappreciated. And so we need to show this preferential level, well, you know, it's, it's okay because it's not about me, it's about you. And so I want you to be recognized. I want you to be appreciated. And even if I'm forgotten, and even if I'm overlooked, and if if nobody ever says thank you, it's okay. Because you got thanked. You got recognized. You got appreciated. And I'm good with that. Number five, hardworking love. We need to express hardworking love. Notice verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence. Not lagging behind in diligence. Hey, can we just, can we just, be real and honest here, loving one another is hard work. And you know what? Some of you are difficult to love. And you know what? Sometimes I'm difficult to love. I get it. It's just sometimes it's just difficult to love one another. And there's just, you know, there's just certain people in your life, man. they just, man, here they come, man, I'm just going to, and you got to, it's just hard. You, You just struggle with loving them. And what was Paul doing here? He says, hey, don't don't lag behind a diligence." In other words, when you see that person coming, you graciously and joyfully and willingly roll up your sleeves and get ready to work at it. Get ready to work at it. And and that just just honors the Lord. And, And come on, it's easy to be lazy when it comes to loving other people. It's easier just sometimes to avoid people. You see them coming up, got to go this way. I think it's time to use the restroom. I think I'm going to go out that exit instead of, right? I mean, you just just avoid them, right? I think this is what's also inherent in here when it says not lagging behind a diligence is we don't just sit around and be idle when someone is in need of love. We shouldn't hesitate or procrastinate or, or drag our feet when we have an opportunity to show love to a fellow believer. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Jeremiah 48.10, a curse be on anyone who is lax in doing the Lord's work. And then I love Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, excuse me, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we need to express hard working love towards one another. And and frankly, that means when you come to church on Sunday, Wednesday, you come to worship, but you also come to work. And so you should come with your sleeves rolled up because we're just going to have to work at loving one another, and the harder we work, the better it gets. Amen. And, uh, and so that's a good thing. How about number six, zealous love, zealous love. Verse 11 again, fervent, he says, be fervent in spirit. So if diligence, in the previous phrase, describes the act of love, I think fervent describes the attitude with which we love. We should never be indifferent or apathetic about loving others. We should be enthusiastic not complacent but fervent we shouldn't have lukewarm love for one another you don't want to be that church right revelation chapter 3 uh, the church in laodicea the the lukewarm church you don't want to have lukewarm love for for one another our love for one another should be boiling over as it as it were um you know, the the idea here potentially is a kind of a glowing lamp, or I think even better, a bubbling pot. Acts 18.25, Luke says that Apollos was fervent in spirit. Looking forward to meeting that guy in heaven, see what he was like. And we need to be like him. We need to be zealous and passionate about loving other people and Again, where it says fervent in spirit, there's some debate. Is this should it should it really be a, a small S like the human spirit or a capital S, the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's all the same in the end, because the only way we radiate the love of Christ is because the Holy Spirit is in us. And so we're aglow with the Spirit. In other words, our hearts are are stirred up for others. And, and it's the spirit that stirs us up to a boiling point where I, I just gotta love you. And I'm zealous to love you. And, uh, and so our love needs to have zeal. Number seven, we need to express or manifest dutiful love. Dutiful love to one another. Here's a simple phrase. He just says serving the Lord. And that word serving there is the word doulos, which I think you're probably familiar with. It's the word for what? Slave. And so we are to serve as slaves. We are to serve one another as a slave. Listen, I am your slave. You are other people's slave when it comes to loving them. Paul considered himself and identified himself often as a bondservant or a bondslave of Christ. In fact, that's how he introduced himself in this letter. Chapter one, verse one, Paul, a bond slave or bond servant of Christ Jesus. He also said that at the beginning of Philippians, the beginning of Titus, the letter to Titus. The point is, listen, if you're a slave, uh, you don't have an option to do whatever you're told to do. You just have to do it, right? And... uh, Loving others is not an option. It's what we've been called to do as bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And therefore we have no choice but to do it and when we do it, we can't take any credit for it. Luke 17 verse 10, this was Jesus' instruction to his disciples, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you say, we are unworthy slaves, we've done only which we ought to have done. Hey, you know what? That's awesome that you that you went and, and took a meal over to that person, or that's awesome that you went and picked that person up at the hospital. And that's awesome that you, you know, sat with that person and and, and served that person. And, and you're like, hey, you know what? I appreciate that, but I was only doing what I should have done. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm a I'm a bond slave of Christ. That's what bond slaves do. So you're not looking, you're not even looking for credit, right? Because you know you don't deserve it. You're, you're, just, you're just doing what you're what you've been called and commanded to do. But in all of that, I think it's super helpful if we don't lose sight of who we're really serving. See, when we, when we get focused on the person that we're serving, and sometimes they don't necessarily appreciate our act of love or we went out of our way to serve them and they, they really don't appreciate us and they don't acknowledge it and, and sometimes it hurts our feelings and well, guess what? You were focused on serving them when ultimately you should have been focused on what? Serving the Lord. That's who we're really serving when we show love to our fellow brother. Colossians 3.23, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That perspective is a game changer. That's why this dutiful love, serving the Lord, I think plays such an important role in this list. Number eight is exuberant love, exuberant love. Notice verse 12, he says, rejoicing in hope. And again, that's a loaded statement. If if you've been with us through our study of of Romans, hopefully you start thinking about all the times he mentioned rejoicing and hope uh, in the first half of the letter. And so based on what he's already said about rejoicing and about hope, we know what he's referring to is living and loving with an exuberant, expectant attitude as we look forward to the return of Christ, the redemption of our bodies, our eternal glory, and ultimately that we're destined for heaven. And uh, Romans chapter five Uh, He talks about this, Romans chapter five, verse uh, two. He says, we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proving character and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint. And then Romans eight, I won't take the time to read it, but you remember that's that great section about how um, How we groan, and how the earth itself groans, and even the Holy Spirit groans for the redemption of our bodies and on this this planet, right? That we're all under the curse of sin, and we can't wait to be redeemed and uh, brought back to the original state that God intended us to be in, where there's no sin, there's no corruption, and so we look forward to that. We long for that. We look. We we have the hope. That is our hope. In fact. Romans 8 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we have hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. That's hope. That you're, it's not a hope so. I hope I hope this all works out. I hope, hope I'm going to heaven. Cross your fingers, right? Uh, no, this is like, I know, I'm confident. And so there's this exuberance with the love that we share with one another. And then the love that we need to express and manifest to one another, it needs to be steadfast. Notice what he says next. He says persevering in tribulation. Since we know the ultimate outcome of our lives, we can hang in there, we can stick to it and patiently and bravely endure any opposition, any obstacle, any setback that we may face when it comes to loving others. Because we know nothing can separate us or no one can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. And good news is it's not always gonna be this way. And I say that, I think of, first thing that comes to my mind is some marriages. It's just, you know what? I'm out. I'm done. And, and where does this phrase, persevering in tribulation, are you experiencing tribulation in marriage? Absolutely. Is, is Paul minimizing that? No, not at all. But he's saying, hang in there. Stick with it. It's not always gonna be this way. There, there's hope for you in the future, right? Whether it's here on this earth or in heaven. It's gonna change eventually. And uh, in the meantime, just know that nothing can separate you from his love. And, 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 and cling to that. The idea here is patience under pressure. And so our love for one another must be tenacious. It must be resilient as we strive to build bridges and break down walls with each other. First Corinthians 15:58, "Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord." And then, of course, Hebrews 12:3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Are you trying to love someone and all you're getting back is hostility? Well, consider the hostility that Christ endured for you and for me so that you'll not grow weary, you'll not lose heart, you'll not throw in the towel. Hey, if Jesus endured it, then... He can number one sympathize with me. He's a sympathetic high priest, and I can go to to find grace and mercy to help me as a as a sufferer here, and and but also he can help me, and he can grant me the grace to endure. So our love needs to be steadfast. It also needs to be unrelenting, unrelenting. Notice uh, the last phrase in verse twelve: devoted to prayer. I mean, this is, it doesn't get any more practical than this. I mean, one of, the, one of the most practical ways that we can express our love for one another is to pray for one another. And not just praying once or every once in a while, but faithfully and continuously and persistently interceding on behalf of our brothers and sisters' love. That is an act of love. That's an expression of love that I'm praying for you until, until you get an answer to that prayer. It's, it's, it's the persistent uh, neighbor, the, the persistent widow. Luke, Luke 11 is the persistent neighbor. And Luke 18 is the story of the persistent uh, widow to the judge. And the neighbor just came and was knocking, 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 knocking at midnight because a friend came and he needed something to give. So he went to his neighbor's house and knocking, hey, I need to get in. I need to get some food to f- feed this guy. And, and the guy didn't want to get out of bed, but he got out of bed. Why? Because he kept knocking. And then the, ju- the widow goes before the judge and she keeps appealing to the judge day after day after day after day, appealing, 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 appealing. Finally, the judge says, fine, I'm gonna grant you your request. Now, the good news is God's not in bed and saying, well, this guy just, when's this guy gonna quit knocking? And he's not a judge who's going, oh, here she comes again, right? That, that's not the, the heart of God. So if these sinful Human judges and friend neighbors are willing to get up or 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 go the extra mile to serve you. How much more God when we're persistent? Knock, right? Ask, seek, and the Lord will answer. So our our prayers need to be unrelenting. The the early church got this. Acts 114. They were all with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 6.4, the the elders of the apostles said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Paul told the Colossians to devote themselves to prayer. I just heard yesterday a, a true story of someone in our church, a godly woman who wakes up every morning at 5.30 and prays for one of her sisters in Christ in this church. And she's done it for over a year, every morning. Sends her emails, tells her how she's doing or uh, you know, what she's praying for, gives her a word of encouragement. I mean, that's unrelenting love. What an expression, a practical expression of love. Our love needs to be generous also. Verse 13, we're almost done here. Notice it says that we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. Contributing to the needs of the saints. That word for contribute there is the word koinoneo, which sounds like the word what? Koinonia, the word for fellowship. This is the the idea of partnership or sharing something in common. And we know that as Christians, we share Christ in common. And if we and if we share Christ in common, then that should naturally lead us to be sharing our stuff in common and uh, with fellow believers uh, in the body of Christ. Again, uh, I'm assuming you're familiar with uh, the early church, and that's just the way they did it. I mean, they just just shared everything. Um, They kind of had a communal uh, uh, situation there initially. At the after Pentecost, I don't think this is the way it always was. But when everybody showed up uh, for Passover and 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 to celebrate the Pentecost, and they 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 saw the Holy Spirit, uh, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, and they got saved, three thousand people. You you talk about planting a church. You got three thousand people the first day. What are you going to do? Well, uh, I don't know. We, let's start selling stuff and pool our money and start feeding people and providing places for them to live. And, and that's just the way it was. In Acts 2, uh, verse 44, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And again, chapter 4 it talks about this in verse uh, 32. Um, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. This is not communism. Don't get this, don't misinterpret this or misapply this. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, for there, is not a need, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any one had need. Paul told Timothy, hey, you got some wealthy people in the church? Instruct them to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. How about 1 John 3, 17? But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love not with word or with tongue but indeed in deed and truth. The point is nothing that we have belongs to us It's all a gift from God that he wants us to gratefully and generously steward by always looking for needs that we can meet within the body of Christ. All right, last one. You ready? Number 12, pursuing love. Pursuing love. That's the kind of love we need to manifest and express to one another, a pursuing love. Notice it says practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. Now I'm just gonna say up front, I would guess that the majority of us have a a misunderstanding or maybe a shallow understanding of what hospitality really is. Because the word practice there, practicing hospitality, literally means to pursue or to hunt, to pursue or to hunt. And the word hospitality or hospitable in the Greek language means a love for strangers. In other words, what what what, uh, what Paul's saying is is we need to we need to track down strangers, newcomers, outliers. Again, typically when we think about hospitality, what comes to our mind is having our friends over to our house and you know having them over for dinner, entertaining guests in our home. Which is part of hospitality, don't get me wrong, right? In the New Testament times, the, the inns were few and far between, and oftentimes they were unsafe, unsafe and un, unsavory places to, to stay. And so Christians in this day would commonly open their homes to fellow Christians who were traveling to their city or through their, through their city to somewhere else. And so providing a meal for someone uh, or putting someone up for the night or letting someone maybe borrow your truck or your tools, that's a whole other Aspect of hospitality, right? It's a way you can show love for others. Uh, That that it's very practical, tangible expression of love. And and when we do these things for others, it's as if we are providing a meal or a bed for who? What's the Bible say? What Jesus say? For him. Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Hey, when were you hungry? When were you, and we fed you? When were you thirsty? Maybe? When were you naked and we gave you something to, uh, to wear? Hey, whatever you did to the least of these, you've done to me. How about this one? This is kind of a spooky verse. Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Do, 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 right? Well, that's a, a good example of that was Abraham in the Old Testament, two guys, saw two guys coming along, and he said, hey, Sarah, go kill the goat and make some bread, and we're going to, you know, host these guys, and, you know, they, they've been traveling a long, long distance, so let's, let's serve them. Well, come to find out, they were angels. In fact, one was the angel of the Lord, one was the pre-incarnate um, uh, image of Christ, 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. It's another good verse to keep in the mix here. But again, the point here is being hospitable is all those things, but it also includes, and this is the part that I think gets left out in our understanding of hospitality. It includes seeking out, hunting for, and tracking down strangers, newcomers, and maybe even outcasts. Luke 14, 12. Jesus said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and and, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. We're like this, right? Hey, come on over to our house. All right, great, all right, all right, now... Now, now you owe us, right? Now we'll be over at your house next time, right? And that's just that's just what we do. It's not, I'm not saying that's sinful, but that's just the way we think about this hospitality thing is, uh, you know, we kind of are obligated to, if somebody serves us that way, we want to do the same back for them. He says, hey, find the people that can't do that. I just dropped my parents off at the airport yesterday to head back to Maine and uh, thankfully they made it back uneventfully and uh, they're self-quarantining for 14 days in the, in the woods in Maine somewhere. Like, I don't think that matters, but they're, in, they're safe and sound up there. Um, but you know what? Uh, this is something that I'm so grateful for my mom and dad. And I'm just going to say, they have the gift of hospitality on steroids, okay? And I'm so grateful to have grown up in a home where I've watched them exercise their gift of hospitality, and, and they, they're always using their home and their resources to serve other people, particularly unbelievers, they're, they're always on the lookout for new people in our neighborhood or new people here in our church, and they're always having people over to their house for dinner. And, and it's typically people they just met that will probably never invite them to their house because that might be the last time they ever engage with them. I always kid with the, the other elders that, that my dad is my best bird dog. Um, because rarely is a Sunday that goes by that my dad doesn't drag some new visitor out into the foyer after church that he's met and he wants me to meet and he wants to introduce him to me. And I, always just, I just chuckle in my head. Erica's my dad and he's dragging something. He's my bird dog. He's just bringing the, you know, he's been hunting. He's been hunting all morning, looking for the new people. He's gonna find the visitors and he's gonna get them and he's gonna bring them back. And uh, wow, they have a passion. They have a gift for, for making newcomers feel right at home. See, that's the way we should all be. We should, our eyes should always be scanning the room, looking for strangers. Rather than, the problem is our eyes are on ourself all the time. We get them off ourself and get them out looking for strangers. Even, even I've, I've done this, chase people down in the parking lot when they're opening the door of their car and it's, it's even startling, like, you're the pastor's stalking me. What is this, what's going on? But I just, they got away and I was like, oh, I didn't even get to say hi and thank you for coming and. You know, we should be doing that, making people feel at home, thanking them for coming and and pastors and elders are, are to be role models of hospitality, in fact, in the life of the church First Timothy three two Titus one eight that's one of the, the the qualifications of a pastor or elder. John Stott, whose commentary has become my favorite one to read every week, i've got all these commentaries on Romans that I access and I always look forward to reading his. Um, He likened these 12 expressions of love to ingredients in Paul's recipe for love. That that Paul's making this, baking this cake, this love cake, right? And these are all the ingredients that go into making this. This is the kind of love that we need to develop in our relationship with one another here in this church. So my question is, as we close, do you love love? other people in our church like this? And my second question is, are you being loved by other people in the church like this? And if the question, or the answer to either of those questions is no, then my third question is, what are you gonna do about it? It's not like, well, I'm just waiting for somebody to do something about it. No, what are you gonna do about it? Can you imagine if we all loved one another like this, what an amazing place this would be, amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for our time together. It's just been like a, a reunion this morning, just seeing everybody and, and uh, um, catching up with everybody, even though there's just some kind of social awkwardness going on right now, and it's just because we've been listening to all this stuff on the news and trying to do our best to follow what we've been told. And, but Lord, we're just so grateful that we know Christ, that we have Jesus in our lives, and uh, we just want others to know him too and to become followers of him. And I just ask, Lord, that you would use this message um, to help us love each other more than we currently do, and that when people see how well we love each other, that they would know that we're Christians, and that they would want to become a Christian too. So that they could be, uh, experience what we experience together as the body of Christ. And so would you accomplish that, Lord, by your spirit in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.